You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. And you can open up your study guides, pick up a Bible, which you'll need later, because we're going to flip to a few different places. Most of the verses that we're going to go over today, most of them, not all of them, most of them are in your study guide, and you can follow along. You can also mark up the study guide, write down references that are not in there. Chapter 4 is where we're on today. Where is the church in the tribulation? Next week, we're going to talk about the tribulation. We're going to just lay out a basic kind of uh, timeline, look at what the Bible says is going to happen in that seven-year period. But today, we're going to deal with a hot-button eschatological issue. So let's pray before we start. Well, God, I know that we Christians can be funny. We can get really protective about some of the things that um, we believe, and we want to be protective about truth, um, Lord, but sometimes um, on secondary issues, we can really sort of, uh, yeah, get almost offended if other people don't believe what we believe. And this is one of those issues, Lord. You've given us certain information about where Christians, the church, is going to be during this period, and um, you've left out some details, And so we know you're coming, and we don't know exactly with 100% confidence um, where we will be during that time of challenge on the earth. We know we're going to be with you at some time. We just don't know when. So would you help me to walk through the different views on this? Would you give me clear words, a clear mind? And would you help us to look at uh, not necessarily what our opinion is, but what does your word say and help us to wrestle with that and to grapple with that um, and to, yeah, grow as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I said it's a hot-button eschatological issue because it's controversial. And it's controversial because it isn't exactly clear. Uh, and that is where the... Uh, conflict sometimes comes into play. And you may say, well, it's clear to me. I know exactly what I believe. And I would say, well, that's great. I'm glad it's clear to you. But there are some very mature, very smart, uh, very theologically astute people who would disagree with you and would have a different view. And, And here's the thing is that one of us or one of the groups is wrong. And that's okay. You know, it's okay to be wrong because nobody is perfect, only Jesus Christ. And when this all plays out, All of us are going to be surprised by a few of the things that come and happen. And so we are talking about the rapture specifically. Where is the church and when does it get raptured? And there's going to be three views. I want to make it very simple because I know sometimes I can go off on raptures. I want to try and keep it simple. There are three views on where the church will be. And they are called pre-trib, meaning the church is taken out of the world before the tribulation starts, mid-trib, meaning the church is taken out in the middle, somewhere in the middle of the tribulation, and post-trib, meaning the church is taken at the last when Jesus Christ comes back to judge the living 
the world, he will then take the church as well. And there are pastors and theologians uh, that I respect on all the aisles, on both sides of the aisle, uh, and they have good arguments as to why they would believe what they believe. And I want to look at some of those today and help you to wrestle with it. Because it's good to know what other Christians think. It's good to know for a few reasons. One, so that you can understand the whole counsel of God, right? God made his word in order for you to be able to read it and come to some conclusions for yourself. And you might say, we live in the time where people say, well, you know, uh, I, I can't sit in a sermon for more than 30 minutes and, 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 and I can't really read the Bible. It's so confusing. But I would say, yeah. I agree, sometimes it can be confusing, and and I know that us North Americans now, they have to write things at like a grade six level for adults because, because we just don't read like we used to, we just don't exercise our minds like we used to, but here's the thing, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit promises to live inside of us and give us understanding and abilities that we didn't possess ourselves. That's the only reason that I, a guy who didn't pass high school till 29 years old, can even stand here and be semi-competent because the Holy Spirit gives me abilities that I didn't used to have. And so I want to teach you to do that, to look at the whole counsel of God. And, and I want the Holy, you to understand the Holy Spirit can help you with that. We want to know all the views because we want to prepare, be prepared for all the options. Because one of them is going to happen and a couple of them are not. And, you know, we have preferences, right? We have preferences in a lot of things. People have preferences in something as simple as a utensil, like your eating utensils. My daughter, Brenna, loves spoons. She wants to eat every food with a spoon, no matter what it is, if it's uh, soup or if it's salad or if it's uh, rice or if it's meat and potatoes. She wants a spoon. That's her preference. Some people like a fork. My favorite, if I could have one utensil, would be a knife. And I got pretty good at eating my meals in the army with just a knife. And I know it's not very safe and probably don't teach your kids how to eat uh, (laughs) soup with a knife. But it's my preference if I only had one. And and my son, Levi, he doesn't even want utensils. He just, his preference is his hands. Just take it and and shove it in and, and God bless him. And my point in all of this is, is we have preferences but you know what? It's good to teach our kids to use all the utensils, isn't it? And, and, and we might have eschological preferences with the way that we desire things to play out or we really passionately believe, but it's good to understand other views, other views of brothers and sisters in Christ. Third reason is I want you to be making informed decisions not just based off of what I tell you or what somebody else tells you. Uh, The way that a leader can get way too much power is when the congregation only listens to everything they say and they never check it out in the Bible themselves, right? That's how a leader can abuse power, how, how religious institutions can abuse power when the congregation isn't actually looking and seeing if God actually says these things. I want to teach you not just to believe something because I say it, but because it's true and you're convicted by that. Like, here's an example. I remember somebody, a few times people have said this to me, dancing is wrong. And I'll say, okay, can you help me understand why that is? 
Um, because my pastor told me so. And it's like, okay, but that's not a good enough answer. Why do you believe that it's wrong according to God's word? And maybe it is wrong, uh, and maybe it isn't wrong. But we need to know more than somebody told me so. Like my, my wife, Rebecca, she's a RN in Bracebridge. She's an excellent nurse. Maybe some of you have had the pleasure of her taking care of you while you're there. And, and sometimes she gets student uh, nurses, nurses that are training, they're in training, and they come in to be the fully trained nurse. And, and it's not her job to go around and do everything for that nurse. It's her job, that student nurse, it's her job to oversee her and, and watch her doing and, ta- and doing, taking care of the patient. And if she needs help, if the nurse needs help, giving her help. And that's what I want to do for you, because what a useless pastor I'll have been. If it's six years I've been here now teaching and preaching, and you can't come to some basic conclusions off of what God's word says about some things in life. And I want that for you because someday I may not be here. Someday I may be in jail. Someday the church may go underground. And, and I want you to be able to study God's word, teach God's word, and be strengthened in God's word. And so we're going to go over these views today. And now, can I get the overhead up? On the charts, you'll have you have these charts on page 19 in your study guides. We're going to be referencing them today, and we're going to be referencing them in three weeks. These are the major views when it comes to eschatology of how things will play out. There's postmillennialism, there's amillennialism, there's uh, prehistorical premillennialism, and there's dispensational premillennialism. Don't worry about trying to memorize those words. We're going to make it simple. We don't have to really worry about the names today. Just get in your mind before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation. Where will the church be? When will God take them, rapture them, grab them from this earth and bring them up into heaven to be with him? And that's the, the, the really thing we're going to wrestle with today. So put all the other things out of your mind, and, and let's go over this very simply. First one I want to talk to you about is pre-tribulation rapture, okay? People who would hold this view, and I'm not going to tell you my view, because then maybe some of you are going to be uh, preference to that view, because my view has actually changed uh, once over my time as being a Christian. And so maybe I'll tell you at the end, but I want you to really think through these things and study these things yourself. It's good to know that Christians can still get along. Uh, Elder Dustin, one of our elders, Dustin, and Pastor Mark and I, we all have a bit of a different take on how things will play out, and that's okay. We can still like each other. Did you know that? It's all right if they're wrong and I'm right, but I can still be their friends about it, and we can still get along, and so it's awesome. So the first one, dispensational premillennialism, i.e., The church is taken at the start or just before the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. I don't believe this one is in your study guide, so you can turn there if you want. Really, um, this view comes from four books of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Matthew, and Revelation 19. That is where this view primarily gets its understanding from. But a key verse that all of the views draw from is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 
to 17. Let me read it for you. For we say this to you by the word from the Lord. This is Paul talking uh, to believers who are worried that they have missed the second coming of Jesus and that they're just stuck here on earth forever. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the, angel, the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The word rapture, and I've given you a lot of information in your study guide, so I won't go over it all again, uh, is derived from this verse right here, the caught up, uh, is where they get the word rapture from, because it actually doesn't appear in the English uh, version of the Bible that we have. And so they get it from it. It means to be snatched. It would be like, like if, I, if I just came, ran over and grabbed Cameron and just ripped them out of his seat and hauled them back in there. It's like quick, it's fast, with the shout. It's like immediately, God, with the blink of an eye, God takes the church. And so all of the views believe this in some way, shape, or form. It's where does it play out? Is there a first coming, a first second coming of Jesus where he gets the church? This is what this view would believe, pre-tribulation. And then another second coming of Jesus at the end to judge the living and the dead. But they all come, get their idea that God snatches them out of the world from that. First the dead, and then those who are still alive. It's very quick. It's, it's, It's imminent. It's the idea of imminency, like that God is at any second, he's just... Any second, we're not going to really know, and he's just going to grab the church. Also, Jesus kind of gives this language in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 14, ver- or sorry, 15, verse 38. Let me just make sure that that is in fact. I made an error on my notes. No, but I'll read it for you. Let me see. I'll read it for you, and we'll find it later. uh, Jesus says, For in those days, he's talking about the days of Noah, and he's referencing his second coming. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. There will be two men in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding grain with their hand mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be alert since you do not know what time your Lord is coming. Some of you have seen the movie Left Behind. It was a big movie in the early 2000s. Kirk Cameron, remember Growing Pains? Good show. Anyone, you see that movie? 
left behind or read the books. It was quite popular. Not too many people. That is very surprising. Well, you can dig up the DVDs if you want to watch it. It sort of plays out. There's three movies, the, the timeline of a pre-tribulation rapture. And, and the scene is Kirk Cameron's on a, a plane, and he is a journalist, a non-believing journalist. And then they're just cruising along, and it's nighttime, and, and the scene is this uh, older lady, she wakes up from sleeping, and she, and she calls Kirk Cameron over, and she says, have you seen my husband? Uh, no, I haven't seen your husband. Well, I think he's gone off somewhere naked. And why do you think that? Because his clothes are just there in a pile on the chair. The idea that he had been raptured, taken very quickly. And then the scene pans out to car crashes all over America. And they look in and again, there's just a pile of clothes there because God has just snatched the Christians out. Like he's talking about, like in the day of Noah, God was warning, Noah was building the ark. And then one day God said, get in the ark and the rain came. I always wondered in that movie, what they do with all the extra clothes? Because there was like 200 million people that are gone, and, and what, did they just divide them up amongst the remaining people, or did they shove them in the, the giveaway boxes at the thrift stores? What they do with all those? But now I'm going off on a rabbit trail, so I'll just come back to it. Another thing is, is they believe that all the children will be taken, that all the children who haven't reached the age of uh, decision will be taken by God uh, to avoid, to not be there for the worst period in history. And can you imagine a world with no children? That would be a pretty hard, pretty sad, pretty depressing uh, world. So all the Christians and all the children are gone, and it'll be quick. It'll be really fast. No one will be expecting it. Also, they believe that God will do this because he wants to save them from the wrath that is to come. So he'll do it quickly, very surprisingly, at the end of the, the sort of birth pains that we talked about Sermon 2, the signs of the time. And he'll do it so that Christians will avoid the wrath of God that is to come on the world. They would get that from First Thessalonians chapter nine, 5, verse 9. That's in your study guides. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is true. God has not destined us for wrath. Um, and those who would not agree with them, those who would look at it, know the church will be here, would say, yes, but this is talking about salvation. He hasn't destined them to the eternal wrath that he will bring uh, to those in this place we call hell, the eternal place where God no longer is and people, non-believers, are there to deal and receive the wrath of sin. And they would say, uh, no, in fact, there will be Christians on earth, but they won't be receiving the wrath of God. They'll just be feeling some of the consequences of that. And they would, they would say, look at Revelation chapter 9, verse 3, and the fifth judgment. And, and you can read that in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 3, the fifth trumpet judgment. We're going to talk more specifically about those next week. They would say, look, there are these things, these locusts, these horrible insects, something like out of a horror movie uh, that are unleashed on the earth, but they don't bite, they don't attack those who are, uh, have the sign of God's protection on them, they would say, the Christians, they would say, so there's, God is bringing wrath on the world, but certain people are not receiving it. Uh, they would say, and you can read later, um, the rest of that I wouldn't recommend reading it to your kids before bedtime, Revelation chapter 9, uh, because it's a little bit intense, uh, worse than anything I saw in the war, and I certainly wouldn't want to see it. 
But they would say that, uh, that in fact, Christians have been suffering for most of history, and therefore, why would God just take them? So one would say God would take them so that they're not here when the wrath of God is coming. The other would say, no, in fact, they are here. They're just not uh, receiving it. It's not on them. And so these two tensions play out. So the third thing that I want to point out that this view would say is... Uh, The reason the world can be the worst and will be the worst it's ever been is because God will remove his church, which is the only thing restraining evil in the world. That the Holy Spirit through the church is the restrainer of evil, and therefore once the church is gone, the Antichrist and his minions for seven years uh, play out all havoc on the earth. Kind of like, I want to give an example, Bill, you're a big tough guy, would you stand up for me? Yeah, you come to church, Bill, for a couple months, and then you've got to be a volunteer. So let's imagine Bill is not a nice guy. He's a great guy. Can you sit there, Bill? And let's imagine uh, he is evil. Yeah, you can stand. He is, he's evil, right? And, and, like, he wants to just unleash havoc on the world. I used to be pretty good with a lasso. Um, and, and so... They would say that, the, the, that in order to keep Bill, whoop, whoop, taking out plastic, in order to keep Bill at bay, we need to restrain him. And that the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is restraining Bill from causing havoc. Try and get at some of the, the other people there, Bill. Try and move out. And uh, yeah, there we go. So, so it's like God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is restraining the Antichrist. Bill's the Antichrist. He's the evil. And I'm the, the, the church full of the Holy Spirit restraining him. But when the church is gone, then he will wreak havoc on the world. Thanks very much, Bill. Let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> so that's called... The pre-tribulation rapture. That's just a few of the beliefs of uh, that eschatological view. Look more in it. I've given you some more references than we've gone over in our study guide. The next is called a mid-tribulation rapture. Okay, so they would believe that, that no, Scripture would not point to they're taken out uh, right before the tribulation starts, but that it's somewhere in the middle I'll give you two, a couple of verses. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1, and we, we talked a lot about this a couple sermons ago, this great falling away. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, remember the gathered, then switch to verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostrophe comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed for destruction. Now, people that hold this view would say, look, the church will not be taken until a couple things have happened, this great falling away of sort of lukewarm Christians, um, just churchgoers, but not really people who are following Jesus Christ, until that happens, until the man of lawlessness is revealed, meaning the Antichrist, he, he really assumes power over the world, they would say, uh, then he's going to bring some persecution because the first three and a half years of the tribulation is him gathering power, him solidifying his strength with the world that he controls. And we talked about him last 
sermon. And they would say that, that after that, then in somewhere in the middle period, he, God will come and take the church. Why would he want to uh, leave the church for the first half of the tribulation? Well, they would say to be a witness for, to him in the earth. And, and so that they can be warning people as this man is assuming power uh, that he is in fact who he said he is. And, and Christians, here's the thing. They would say Christians tend to shine their brightest under persecution, under hardship. And Christians tend to flounder when things are very easy. And so let me give you an example I just made up. Let's imagine uh, you're a fire chief. You're the chief of a fire department in a major city. And, and you see that a building is on fire, a 100-story building. And it started a fire on the bottom floor. And, and you know it's not going to go out. There's no way to put it out. But you say to your firefighters, I'm going to drop you off on the top floor. And you are going to work your way down. And I have calculated the amount of time it will take for that fire to get to the 50th floor. And so, firefighters, I want you to work your way down from the 100th floor, warning people of what is coming up and inviting them to get out. And I am going to have an escape plan for you on the 50th floor where you will meet me, and then I will evacuate. And everyone below that, unfortunately, won't be ever. That's just something I made up my mind to, to try to get to you what they're thinking. They're thinking God will allow the church to be here to warn those of who this Antichrist is, and to shine for him in the persecution that is there. They would also look to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, About the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will be just like a thief in the night. When they say, Peace, security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. With labor pains of a pregnant woman, they will not escape. So again, they would say that, that the Antichrist, who as we talked about in detail, will come, he will be smooth. He will not be an arrogant, uh, bad man uh, that you will see and you'll be like, oh, he's not a very man. He'll come with sweet words. He'll be a deceiver. He'll be convincing lots of people. And only those uh, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who, who have their mind in God's word, will be able to see the deception. And he'll be saying, because this will be right after a bad period of history, he'll be saying, peace, security. And Christians will be going, no, not peace, not security. And then, like a thief in the night, he will take them. So that is a mid-tribulation view. And then now let's look at the last one. Because I want to keep this simple. I don't want you to be confused. You can very much look into this more for yourself. The last view would be what's called post-tribulation rapture. This is the oldest of the views. Uh, the pre-tribulation view was uh, first seen in theological circles in the year about 1830 by a man named Jonathan Darby. Um, and who, who, who wrote and put this uh, theological um, view on paper. Uh, the other one, mid-tribulation view, would be seen back somewhere around the 8th century the first time. And this view, the, what they call the post, meaning the Christians will, there won't be two second comings of Jesus, just one, all at the end, as you can see uh, right there, uh, historical, the top one. Uh, post-tribulation premillennialism, that there is one second coming of Jesus. Um, he will first take the church, living in the dead, and then he will bring judgment upon uh, the unbelieving 
world, the Antichrist, and so on and so forth. This dates back to the second century, first written down by the apostles, or the, sorry, the disciples of the apostles. So like the men that were um, brought up by the apostles under their teaching, so the second generation of Christians, uh, we have ancient writings, historical documents with this view, and this was the main view um, for quite some time that the church will be taken at the end of the tribulation. So, look to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. It's in your study guides. They would say, I'll read it, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So we, we just looked at that. It's the same uh, verse that mid-trib people would say. But look at... Uh, the second sentence, for that day. Did you see it's a singular? If you look at it in the Greek, it's singular. It's, it's not plural. It's not uh, that of multiple days, but it, they would say it's referring to one day. That one coming of Christ. And this is what they would say. They would say that although it can look like it's two different second comings of Jesus, the Bible actually never says there are two comings. It's One, it only refers to one. They would say the apostles and Jesus never referred to multiple second comings of Jesus, but only this one day. That day, they would say as Paul writes. But in that one day, there are some different things that are going to take place. And that the details of those uh, two two, uh, purposes are just explained and and they would say people take them as two separate events. So like I made an eye appointment during COVID and... My family knows you want to like uh, put me under torture for hours and beat me to a pulp, um, but touch my eyes and I'll probably spill the beans. Like my eyes are very sensitive. So I, I worked up the courage to make an eye appointment. And, and I thought I'd have to go and make another appointment to go see the person, um, the salesman to give me um, eyeglasses. I just booked an appointment with a place in Aurelia, an eye doctor. Uh, But I got there and he told me, actually, you have two appointments in this one appointment. We've made you appointment to see the doctor, and then we're going to take you next door and you're going to see the actual glasses salespeople. And so there was one appointment made with, with two purposes in the one appointment. And they would say that is what is going to take place at the end of the tribulation. So they would also say that... uh, They see too many references to Christians in the tribulation um, for us to believe that there isn't a church there. Let me give you a few references. Revelation 16, verse 6, and I'll read just read three of them. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. This is during the tribulation. Revelation 13, verse 7. For it, and it's referring, it is the beast. It was permitted to wage war, and the beast is the false, is the Antichrist. We talked about that. For it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 21 to 22, Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. They will be hate, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And then when Paul writes to the Christians and Thessalonians, uh, chapter 1, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, he says this. And these are all in your study guides. All this is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. And so you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. After all, it is only right that God were, would repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are oppressed and to us as well. This, what's he referring to? He's referring to when the relief from the suffering the Christians are in and the judgment that is to come upon the world will happen. He says, this will take place when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a blazing fire, afflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of their Lord Jesus Christ. They would say that this verse... um, promises suffering for Christians for righteousness' sake, that suffering is to be expected, and that the couple hundred brief years of um, relative ease that Western Christians have enjoyed is not the normal that, in fact, for the last 2,000 years, and still most Christians in the world suffer for their faith, suffer for following Jesus Christ. And, And that they're saying, Paul is saying, listen, the relief from that will not come until he comes back to bring judgment. You see, it's that they're saying it's one event with two purposes. And so the West, this is, this, they would say this is hard for us because in the West, we've developed something called prosperity preaching where um, we believe, or, or some, sorry, some teachers would say that God's main purpose for you is to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. But that only works in the rich West. It doesn't really work if you're living in Africa or Asia, um, or the Middle East. But they would say the norm for Christians is to suffer for righteousness' sake. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Now, why? Why would God allow us to suffer? Isn't that kind of mean? It's hard, right? I don't want to see my children suffer. Uh, but they would say, and the Bible would teach that, that God allows us to suffer for a couple of reasons. One, for his glory, that as we suffer well, um, as we persevere well, it glorifies God's name. And people look and, and see. That's what happened in the Roman Empire. Like the Roman Empire was an absolutely miserable place to live unless you were one of the few at the top. But these Christians came along and they seemed to like light up during persecution and they seemed to have a hope that was greater than the world and greater than prosperity. And, and they seemed to love with, with such kindness, even though they were being persecuted in the world, the people are like, what is this? Who are these people? And, and God's name was glorified, meaning lifted up, because as they saw these people, they wanted to know who their God was. And then they came to faith and turned the Roman Empire upside down. So the Bible would uh, say God allows us to suffer for his glory and two, for our transformation. Romans chapter five, verses three to five. Do you not, uh, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope and the hope will not, and this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit in us. 
So they would say that God is going to allow us to go through this uh, to bring him glory, to, to raise his name up as a banner amongst all the hardship and, and uh, challenges going on, and also to transform our characters. Isn't it amazing to you that we in the West suffer with anxiety um, and depression more than pretty much any other group in the world, and yet we have the easiest lives. We have e- li- lives much easier than most of the world. And, and there is something to examine in that. Is it that all our prosperity and all the ease uh, isn't maybe as good for us as we think it is? Uh, that as uh, we suffer, we, endurance is produced in us, and endurance uh, produces character, and, and character produces hope, and this is the hope that, that Christians in Africa and Asia and, and the Middle East have that sometimes we don't have. Think on those things. So the last reason they would say is that the Bible seems to follow this timeline of this one event. Just flip with me if you have your Bibles. If you have a pew Bible, it'll be really easy. I'll give you the page number. And um, we're almost done. Flip to First Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And they would say that different writers who talk about the end times seem to overlap um, with each other in this common timeline. There's some common things. I'm just going to point out one of their arguments for you now. So that's page 1047 in the Pew Bible, or the Church Bible. Verses 15... Chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. For we say this to you by the word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God. Keep that word in your mind. Trumpet of God. And the dead will rise first. And those who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds with the Lord. And so it will always be with the Lord. So then it goes on in, verse, in chapter 5 to talk specifically about the day of the Lord. Um, and so just so you can see how Scripture needs to flow and you need to read it in context. You can't just take one verse out of context. And so notice it says, on that day of the Lord, there'll be this trumpet, this trumpet blasting, the trumpet of the archangel. So let's see if that's anywhere else. Now flip to Revelation chapter 8. That's page 1094 in the church Bible. Revelation chapter 8. Verses I'll read verses 1 to 2 and then skip down. For when, when he opened up the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw seven angels who stand in the presence of God, and seven trumpets were given to them. I go down to verse 6. And the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And go to verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, 
and so that a third of them were darkened. The third day was without light, and also a third of the night. So these two verses talk about this trumpet that will take place. And, and so those, if the pre would say, no, that trumpet is like a special one before the, the tribulation period. It's like one that we don't see. And those with the other view would say, no, it's the same. It's the same. It's about this day of the Lord. Remember Thessalonians talking about the day of the Lord. And now we're, we're near the end of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 8 with the trumpet judgments. Now, for one more place, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, that's page 879 in the church Bible. This is, we looked at this in some pretty detail, um, second sermon. So it starts out, they ask him, Jesus, when is all these events going to happen? When are we going to know when you're coming back? Verses 3 to 8 is about the um, birth pains, the signs of the times. We talked about that sermon too. Then verses 9 to 14 is persecution that is going to come. Then verse uh, 15 is to verses 22 is about the great tribulation. And so it speaks of the signs of the times, persecution, if we're looking at it in kind of like an order, which they would say it is. Um, and then the great tribulation uh, starts. And go down to verse uh, 28. One, for at that time there will be great distress, the kind that has not been taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. Uh, That means those who God has chosen uh, to come out and And then it goes on to say there's going to be false messiahs. They're going to be saying, Jesus is here. The Antichrist is going to be saying, I'm I'm here. And then um, I am the Messiah. Remember we talked about that. He's going to claim to be God. Then go to verse 29. And then it goes on to talk about the coming. So now is the coming of Jesus. So we saw it's signs, persecution, great tribulation, and now it's the coming of the Son of Man. And immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. Where did we see that? Revelation chapter 8. The moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of the Man will appear in the sky, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. Remember, talked about a time of great distress, when people will mourn, and they will see the Son of the man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather up the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So the third reason is they would say the timeline of the Bible seems to speak um, to overlap. And so, in conclusion, what can we believe and what can we have confidence in when it comes to eschatology. Well, I'll tell you what we can have confidence in, that Jesus Christ was a real man who actually came and lived on this earth and actually claimed to be God and was actually crucified by the Romans and was actually seen and witnessed by hundreds of people that he had resurrected, so much so that they died for that faith. They were willing to die, and who will die for a lie? 
And, and that out of this belief came the Christian church, which suffered under persecution. And so can we trust that Jesus was really real? Yes, 100%. We can be confident that Jesus Christ was a real man. Can we be 100% confident that the Bible is God's perfect word given to us by God and that it has not been tampered with by man? Yes, we can. We have more ancient historical documents, copies of the Bible than any other document. And, and it, that the words of this uh, book have brought more men and women to peace uh, throughout the world, throughout all walks of life and on all countries, throughout all different uh, phases of time, like no other book in history. And that it's actually spoken of events, uh, hundreds, thousands of years um, that have now come to take place. So can we be 100% confident that this book is true? Yes. Can we be 100% confident that um, the church is going to be taken before or middle or at the end? No, we can't be 100% confident. It's going to happen, but we just don't know when. Only God knows when. We can't say with 100% confidence when that will be. God has given us this to give us comfort and also to warn us, to warn us. To warn us that we need to be at work. We need to be ready for him. We need to be ready for whatever option comes. And to be perfectly honest with you, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter so much as we think it matters when he's coming. Doesn't really matter as much as we put on it when our exit will be from this earth. Whether it be before, in the middle, or at the end. We... Uh, So get focused on wanting to know if we're going to be suffering, if we're going to be in this hard period of life. But I think we need to bring our eyes back on to our task. If we're not here during the tribulation, well, great. I don't want my wife and children to suffer. I don't want to see them possibly killed for their faith. But that means if we're not going to be here, we have some work to do. We shouldn't just sit in our houses and and build up our own little lives. We need to get out into this world because that means there's going to be some people left behind who we love and care about who don't know the message of Christ. And so we have to be at work. We need to focus on the work that is ahead of us. We need to love sacrificially even as the world around us seems to grow colder and colder. And if we are here during that period of time, well, you need to be ready for that. Because either one of two things is going to happen, body of Christ. Either some will fall to pieces because they will have banked everything on getting out before the hardship comes. And when it, if it was to come, they would just fall to pieces. But we need to stand regardless. We need to be willing to stand for Christ, whatever might come. Because when we stand during hardship and persecution, then we shine bright then the world takes notice. How easy it is to be a Christian when your life is easy. Much more difficult when things are hard. But oh, so much more glorious for the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing is for sure. We all have a date with eternity. A date with that death. And the final pages of our life, don't know how it's going to play out. But I do know we can live well 
We can live better as a church than we've been living for the last hundred or so years. We can really start to love each other as a church, not just show up casually and not get to know each other, not invest in each other's lives. We can really take an interest in that world out there if we believe that that day is quickly approaching. We can really get invested in people's lives. We can really seek after Jesus Christ as if he was going to be the only thing that would get us through this tribulation that may, that will someday come and we may be here for. In your study guides, on the last uh, page of this chapter, I've given you a question to wrestle through. That's your homework for this week. I want you to read it. I want you to examine it. I want you to think about it. And I want you to pray about it. And then I hopefully want you to do it. And it's going to lay out some questions for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for hope. Lord, that's a lot of information in a short amount of time. I just pray you would give us calm spirits. That desire to want to know you. That desire to want to be ready. That desire to want to talk to people about you and why we have the hope that we have. Lord, would you help us each to wrestle through um, what your word says and to come to some convictions and conclusions ourselves, but never become arrogant and believe that we have a 100% perfect understanding of what your word says. God, thank you so much that someday we are going to be with you in the sky. That is a given. When that is, I'm not 100% sure. But that day is going to be so wonderful and glorious. Help us to look forward to that no matter what comes in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.